everyone. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4 verses 1 through 26. The title of the sermon is The Story of the Woman at the Well. The Story of the Woman at the Well. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll look at the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be here to worship you. We thank you for health and uh, safety thus far in just uh, all the things going on in this world. We pray for your continued protection, and uh, through it, uh, cause our hearts to depend on you more. Um, be with us now as we look at your word. Speak to us through your word. Minister to us. Uh, meet us where we're at so that our hearts, we belong to you, we trust your word, uh, Jesus would become more and everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The story of the woman at the well. Um, we've been looking at John and we've been seeing the gospel writer laying out for us, telling us how Jesus is better, how he's greater, how he surpasses the Old Testament. And uh, we've been kind of recapping week to week, but we saw again the um, how Jesus replaced the, the purification rites of the Old Testament, how he's the new temple, uh, the new birth that comes through Jesus Christ, um, the, the baptism that's better than John's baptism. And now through this text, Jesus makes it possible for worshipers to come to the Father in spirit and truth. And he's at the center of that, how we can now actually approach God and, and worship God and call him Father in spirit and truth. And we'll, we'll see that through this text. It's kind of a long passage. It's a long chapter. The story of the woman at the well actually doesn't end in verse 26, but that's where we're going to stop. Uh, up until verse 26, uh, there's a lot to talk about even in those verses. And then I guess beyond that, we'll, we'll, look, we'll kind of break it up and talk about the remaining verses after this. Okay, so I have three points today. First, the living water. The living water, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you've uh, ever heard a sermon before containing a Samaritan, uh, you've probably heard already that Jews did not like Samaritans. And that's because uh, the when the northern kingdom in the Old Testament, when the old northern kingdom went into exile at the hands of the Assyrians, um, even though many were sent into exile, some remained. And, and when the Assyrians came and occupied the land, they intermarried with the remaining Jews. And the result was a mixed race that, became, that came to be known as Samaritans. And because of their mixed background with the Assyrians, 
they held many different religious views, different theological views from the Jews. And uh, we can begin to understand how Jews felt about Samaritans when we think of perhaps even, even today, some of the negative stereotypes that exist today concerning certain groups of people and how from uh, groups to groups versus groups, there's you know, some, some very extreme negative stereotypes and hatreds that exists even in our world today. And, and then we can, we can begin to understand how Jews felt towards Samaritans. Jews despised Samaritans and considered them unclean. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. The sixth hour, John tells us it was the sixth hour. That's an important detail because this is about noon, near the hottest time of the day, which was typically not the time when women came to draw water, but that's when this woman Came. Woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parentheses, for Jews had no have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is weary, thirsty from his travel. It's in the the heat of the day, so he asks her for a drink. And John tells us why this request was so surprising to the woman. First, she was a woman, and secondly, she's a Samaritan. And he, John tells us in parentheses, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Some translations say Jews don't use the same dishes Samaritans have used. And that's out of the fear of becoming unclean. But of course, Jesus was no ordinary Jew. Any other Jew would have be, become defiled by touching what is unclean. But we've seen in the Gospels, Jesus touches a leper, unclean leper, and the leper becomes clean. Kind of reminds you of those Chuck Norris jokes, right? And obviously, Jesus is greater than Chuck Norris. And that's why Jesus initiated this conversation with this woman of Samaria, because he's no ordinary Jew, and he wanted to give her what only he can give. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But Jesus basically says, I have something to give you, something that you need. And because they're at a well, they're thinking about water, he uses the metaphor of living water to refer to the gift of eternal life that only God can give, the unending life-giving water that comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get 
that living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So obviously the woman doesn't understand, right? It's much like Nicodemus, who didn't understand when Jesus talked about the need to be born again. He didn't understand. She doesn't understand. Jesus offers her living water, and she basically says, what are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket. And uh, she thinks he's talking about drinking water. She says, Jacob gave us this well, and if you know how to get water without having to draw, draw it from this deep well, then you must be greater than Jacob. And even as she's saying this, she's maybe being sarcastic, maybe she's patronizing him, but in any case, she doesn't seem to believe anything that Jesus is saying. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She doesn't get it, so Jesus patiently explains further what he means. Drink this water in this well, and eventually you'll be thirsty again. But drink the water I give you, and you will never thirst again. Jesus is using this water analogy to speak to her spiritual reality, because we find out later in this conversation that she's actually had five husbands in her life. This is a woman who had been seeking for a long time for something to satisfy her heart. There was an emptiness in her, and so she longed. And that longing led her to her first husband. And through her husband, her hope was she would be fulfilled. But it didn't work. She became thirsty again. And then she hoped that the next husband was different than the last, that this marriage would truly satisfy her. But it didn't, and she became thirsty again. So Jesus identifies her problem, that she was actually drinking from the wrong well. You see, this woman was actually following a common human pattern. Back in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. I want to give them a fountain of living water. They've forsaken me, the true fountain of living water. And then beyond that, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to her. Subtly, gently pointing this out to her. That this woman was longing for something to satisfy her soul. But she was looking for it in broken cisterns. So inevitably, she would be left thirsty again. I was driving the other day, and the song, I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys came on. 
Okay, it came on from my playlist on my phone. <laughs> but it sounds better if I just say it came on. And listening to this song, I thought back to the time when they were unbelievably popular. I don't know if some of you are alive back then, but uh, teen girls were going crazy over the Backstreet Boys. Even the teen girls' moms were going crazy at their concerts. Their songs were on the radio all the time. Okay, now it's 20 years later, and it's almost embarrassing now to say that you used to love the Backstreet Boys. And that's because you look back on it now with a sober mind, right? Like you can see clearly now, why were they so popular? They weren't awesome singers. They weren't even great dancers. And a few of those boys were average looking at best. But for some reason, they were the thing. Now you look back on it, you can't figure out why people like them so much. It was a fad, right? They were the biggest group during the boy band fad. You see, the Bible tells us that every enticing thing in this entire world is a fad. There are many things in this world that we go crazy over. But one day, all things will pass and we'll be able to see clearly. We're going to wonder why we were so crazy about these worldly things. The things that we're constantly, you know, jumping from one thing to another, trying to satisfy our hearts, right? We go crazy, crazy over academic success. Like it drives you crazy trying to attain that achievement. We go crazy over getting married because having that spouse is going to be magical. And especially, we go crazy as we idolize our children. Literally crazy over our children. But whatever we drink from is a broken cistern in this world. And it will eventually leave us right back where we started thirsty again. You see, this woman was no different than any of us. And to her and to us, Jesus promises something different. Again, Jesus said in verse 10, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew, right? If you knew, you would have asked him. That's what God is saying to us through this story. If we knew, there's this, 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 this fad all around us in this world. But if we only knew what he has for us, how much better his living water is, then we would go to Jesus instead. Then we would ask him instead of thirsting for the things of this world. But that's the problem. We don't really know. So we keep chasing after water to fill our thirst, to satisfy our souls. 
Jesus assures us that the life-giving water that he gives will once and for all satisfy our thirst. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this invitation is for all of us. This is a passage that we looked at over the summer. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Verse 3, that your soul may live. The living water. Secondly, call your husband and come. Okay, so after this, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I might not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so obviously from this, she still doesn't get it, right? She still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. She's still thinking about water. Give me this water that never runs out so that I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. And to that now, Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman doesn't understand what Jesus is offering, so Jesus helps her understand by pointing out her need for what Jesus is offering. As if to say, this is why you need living water. And he does this by pointing to that one area of guilt and shame in her life. Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Think about what's going on here. Jesus says, go call your husband. I have no husband. That's all she says. I have no husband. She does not want to get into this. Go call your husband. I have no husband. Oh, okay. I figured you were married, but I guess you were wrong. That's how she was hoping the conversation would go. What she said is technically true because the one she's sleeping with now is not her husband, but there was a lot there in this area of her life that she was not about to unpack. She didn't want to get into that mess. But Jesus does not leave it alone. Why? Because this area of guilt and shame in her life was also the arena of her sin. Jesus offers her living water, but before you can drink from the spring of living water, you have to turn away from your broken cisterns. Even in that Isaiah 55 passage, right? The verse that we read, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters that your soul may live. And then a few verses later in verse 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, faith and repentance are opposite sides of the same coin. To believe in Jesus for eternal life means to first turn away from the broken cisterns, then drink from the living water. First turn away from your sin, then come to Jesus. So Jesus addresses the elephant in the room, if you will. 
go call your husband and come. You know, whenever we go through any difficulties in our lives, uh, what we're experiencing in that difficulty internally is a complex thing. How we feel, why we feel like that, how we respond to the sufferings that we're going through. It's a complex thing to try to understand because human beings are complicated beings. They're a mixture of many different factors involved. We talked about this briefly at FNL last year, that every believer going through difficulties can be viewed as these different components, saint, sinner, sufferer, and how these three identities overlap overlap in complex ways. Every believer is a saint, and that means he or she wants to fight as they're going through that difficulty, wants to fight and overcome and honor God in the challenges that they're going through because of the Holy Spirit that's at work in them. It's a saint responding to that to that difficulty, wants to bring glory to God. Every believer is also a sinner, and that means there are ways that he or she does not go through that difficulty like Jesus would. It means that we love ourselves, and we don't love others, and that dynamic manifests in different ways. And every believer is also a sufferer, affected by the brokenness of this world, affected by the sins of others, Sometimes going through God's, God-ordained, God's loving discipline in the form of suffering. It's important that we don't neglect any of those components and the challenges that we face in our lives because these identities have to be held in the right balance. To see ourselves predominantly as a sinner and sufferer, like that's bad because... That's like a hopeless, um, endless, miserable cycle, right? Because we can never get away from our sins. So to predominantly see, to see myself as a sinner, suffering sinner, that's a miserable place to be. We can never get away from our sins. And some people do this to themselves. I'm the sinner and I need to deal with my sins. And that's the predominant thought. To see ourselves predominantly as a saint and sufferer is also a hopeless path because if I don't see my sins, then I'm just a saint and sufferer. I'm a victim of circumstances. I'm a victim of other people's sins. And again, there's no way out of that because people are sinning against me all the time. This broken world brings difficult circumstances into my life all the time, and none of those things I can control. Again, a hopeless path. And that's why these identities have to be held in the right balance. Saint, sinner, sufferer. Notice the way that Jesus addresses the woman here, addresses the woman's sins. In verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. He says, Go. Identify your sin and come. John said back in chapter 2 that Jesus knew all people. He knew what was in man. Jesus knew Nathaniel, 
Remember, I saw you under the fig tree. Jesus knew exactly what Nicodemus needed, why he came to him at night. And Jesus knew exactly why the Samaritan woman was coming to draw water at noon. He knew the mess she had made of her life. He knew her deepest desires, knew exactly what was going on in her heart. So Jesus points to the most vulnerable area in her heart, that area of guilt and shame. And he says, go identify your sin and come. He had every right to condemn, but he doesn't. He invites her to himself. He doesn't just say, go call your husband and deal with your problem first and and take care of that. He invites her to himself. Come. Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. He doesn't condemn her for her sin. He invites her to repent of her sin that she might experience the spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to us. There might be some areas of our lives that's just a complete mess. Like we don't know like even how to even begin to try to straighten things out. But Jesus knows. He says, I know what you've been dealing with. I know what you're feeling. He knows our pains and our hurts. He understands fully. I saw you under the fig tree. I've seen you in your room. I've seen you in the the quietness of your own heart. And he says, repent of your sins and come. And the invitation is for all of us. Thirdly, lastly, worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now she's beginning to understand that Jesus is different. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So this was a a, a point of theological disagreement between Samaritans and Jews. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus basically says, this isn't something worth debating about because soon it won't matter. And he refers to the hour, right? The hour is coming. The hour in John means, uh, is referring to his death and resurrection. The hour is coming when because of what's accomplished in that hour, Where you worship won't matter. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Meaning, you don't know the God that you worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that we must worship in spirit and truth? I used to think that worship in spirit and truth was talking about how we should worship with both heart and mind, right? Like spirit and truth. Not just all passion, not just all passion and no substance, not just all heart, no mind. 
not just growing in head knowledge about God, but lacking passion, worship in spirit and truth. That's what I thought it meant, but that can't be the point of what Jesus is saying here because Jesus says, the hour, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father, spirit and truth. So whatever it means, it has to pertain to the hour. Again, referring to everything that will be accomplished through Jesus' death and resurrection. So that means worshiping the Father in spirit and truth is a result, some sort of result of what Jesus will accomplish through his death and through his resurrection. Um, Theologian D.A. Carson describes what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And he says a lot of things. I'm not going to read a commentary to you, but I'll just kind of uh, capture it in a nutshell. The worshipers, like what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? The worshipers whom God seeks worship him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy. Right? That's the in spirit part. Out of the, su- out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy and on the basis of God's incarnate self-expression, Christ Jesus himself, through whom God's person and will are disclosed. And that's the truth part. Essentially, God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge of the one who is God's truth, Jesus Christ. So to worship the Father in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth means that the gospel truth is what we believe in our hearts. It's truly what we believe in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit uses that, works through the gospel knowledge in our hearts so that Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our hope. We love him. We want to live for him. We drink of the living water and that is expressed in the way that we live our lives Worshippers worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus finally declares himself to the woman as a Christ. Now, if we remember This conversation started because Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was was weary, thirsty, because he's a human being. The very fact that the second person of the Trinity is thirsty proves his love for us, that he became a man, was able to become thirsty. That fact demonstrates his great love for us. But this is not the only place John records Jesus being thirsty. Later on, as Jesus hung on the cross, one of the things that he he says is, I thirst. Jesus again became thirsty as he's dying on the cross for our sins. So initially, this woman, she was suspicious of what Jesus was offering, right? Are you really saying that that what you have to offer me is better than the love of a husband? I mean, she wasn't really sure. Like, she couldn't really believe. Are are you really telling me that what you have to offer me is better 
than, than what I've been seeking my whole life? Jesus, do you really expect me to believe that what you have for me is better than what I can get from myself in this world? But it turns out he was not a pretender. He actually backed up these words, backed up what he was offering by giving up his very own life. And that is why Jesus is able to call this Samaritan woman to himself. Forsake your sins and come. Turn away from your broken cisterns and come drink from the spring of living water and you will never thirst again. That invitation is for all of us. May we be the true worshipers of God who worship out of the fullness of the supernatural life that we enjoy because we've, we've trusted in His word and tasted the unending well of the living water and on the basis of God's incarnate truth. Jesus Christ, one we can bank our faith on because he gave himself to back up his words. Remember, remember John 3.16 said, whoever believes, whoever believes can have eternal life. And that applied not only to Nicodemus, but also to the Samaritan woman who was very different from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man, an educated man, highly influential, well-respected. He's the guy who would walk down around town with his head held up high. The Samaritan woman was the opposite. She was a woman, uneducated, uninfluential, shameful, despised, avoiding people as much as possible. The Gospel of John shows us that no matter what our external qualities are, no matter what our past experiences are, we're essentially all the same. We're all in need of Jesus and whoever believes in him can come and will have eternal life. Let's pray together. I think this passage is speaking to our, our heart's longings and our pursuits, uh, the many different fads in this world that we're chasing after because just honestly like we just don't see clearly right now on this side of eternity we just don't see clearly a lot of things are foggy to us a lot of things seem so enticing to us we feel like I have to have that in my life that's the best thing and we we long for it we seek after it we pursue it only to be left thirsty again. And this passage is addressing exactly that pursuit. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters that your soul may live. And Jesus offers what only God can give, the wellspring of living water. Let's uh, come before the Lord. 
He has every right to condemn us, but He does not. He just directs us and points us to our wrongful pursuits, invites us to repent that we might come to Him and experience the living water. Let's do that in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would minister your truth into our hearts, that we might worship in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we see, we see the, the great love of God demonstrated, recorded, written down in the Gospels and written pages. How the Creator God, the Almighty God, the self-sufficient God is mindful of us, His creature, a rebellious people. You don't need us, but you love us, you care for us. See the love of God demonstrated in the life of um, Nicodemus inviting him to be born from above. We see the love of God demonstrated in the life of this Samaritan woman despised by this world yet cherished by the Father God. And we thank you that your love for us is great. Every single person in this room, every single person tuning in, no matter what we're going through, how you know us and see us, how you see every crevice and corner of our hearts. And though you have reason and every right to condemn, you don't. Your love is great. Your grace is sure. And you invite us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to come to experience you, to be with you, to enjoy this life everlasting. Lord, help us to receive the word with the eyes of faith, that we will respond in faith and repentance and offer our hearts to you and allow the Spirit to work in our lives in unimaginable ways that Christ would be exalted in and through us. Bless the, the ministry of your word in the hearts of your people. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible, unchanging covenant love of the Father God, and the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen. <laughs>